You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I cannot remember a time that I have looked forward to Advent more than I do in this particular time in which I find myself. Growing up, in my stream of our particular faith heritage, it was not proper nor right to celebrate Christmas as having to do with anything with Jesus. Christmas was mostly about gifts and just a holiday that we celebrated. And as I began to understand that, yes, historically, Jesus could have been born in October or April, I began to explore the meaning behind this season. I began to understand that the church never really celebrated one day, they celebrated a season for all of the reasons in which I've already explained. And that it was necessary because one day doesn't form us. Just like one hour a week doesn't form us. It is a life given to the presence and the purposes of God. It is learning to see clearly. And judging by the news media, social media, and casual conversations at dinner tables and around Starbucks, it appears that many people in our nation are struggling to see clearly. It seems to me that many in our nation are listening to one of two dominant voices. One voice is shouting declarations of hope, telling us that our economy will finally turn around as jobs will spring up from the grounds of revitalized capitalism. Morality will finally be legislated to society from the highest courts in the land. Safety and security will come to us in the form of walls and greater weaponry as we wipe out all who threaten our way of life. These voices tell us that America will become great and powerful once again. And then there's the other voice. The one shouting declarations of fear, telling us that many of our civil rights and civil liberties will be sacrificed upon the altar of conservatism and fundamentalist religion. Harm is going to come to all of us, especially the marginalized and the vulnerable. And these voices tell us that our country will lose its greatness and powers, democracy unravels before our very eyes. Admittedly, there is a lot I do not know concerning the claims of either voice. What I do know is that both of them want all of our attention. They want us to see what they see or think what they think based upon the data they've compiled and the facts they have weighed and the feelings they've sorted out through intellectual reason and logic. And in the end, the preoccupation of both voices is grounded in a desire to manage life and control outcomes. And if by some chance, what they see, if by some chance the data they compile and the facts they weigh and the feelings they sort out through reason and logic changes and flips, so too will the voices and they will then exchange bullhorns. Where the voice who once shouted declaration of hope will now shout declarations of fear and the voice that shouted declarations 
of fear will now shout declarations of hope. It just depends on which shoe the voice is wearing. And it just goes to show that both of these voices, however well-intended, however sincere, are both prone to fear and anxiety rather than a steadfast hope. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that on November 9th, our country became inundated with these two dominant voices with all their hope and fear. Since then, I cannot even watch national news stations of any brand without someone trying to persuade me to see the hope they see or to feel the feelings they feel. It is as if, really, that my life is supposed to be somehow consumed with all the data that has been compiled and the facts that have been raised, weighed, and the feelings that have arisen through the reason and logic, and somehow that my life is supposed to be consumed upon the state of my nation. If I want to properly manage my life and control outcomes. But then almost unnoticed, along comes Advent. And with Advent, our attention is called to a different nation, the Jews. The Jews are a people who, for the most part, have not been committed to compiling data, weighing facts, and sorting out feelings through intellectual reason and logic. It's not their M.O., Instead, they are committed to their peculiar stories, stories that speak of transformation, liberation, healing, and newness. All coming about in the form of a miracle created by the God who can do the impossible. And at the center of many of these stories are prophets who with their poetic voices offer words that are expressive and imaginative, disruptive and comforting. These prophets are nothing less than poets. They write, actually, in your Bibles. They write in poetry. And so we'll call them poet prophets. See, poet prophets knew that Ongoing commitments to what we think we see by compiling data and weighing facts and sorting out feelings through reason and logic will not transform people's hearts, nor will it make a society new again. Poet prophets will challenge the claims of what we think we see. Poet prophets will open the world beyond reason and logic. Poet prophets will give access to tensions and contradictions that disrupt our logic. Poet prophets will not only remember, but will wonder and imagine and even propose a new way forward. Poet prophets are always proposing, much like the man who is in love who proposes to his girlfriend to become his wife. He opens her up to an imagination that says, till death do we part in sickness and in health. I will love you always. He cannot necessarily live into that, but he opens her imagination up to it and she even accepts the proposal as possible and says yes, and so they live on, come or go what may, the prophets are no different. 
but yet we find them strange and at times idiotic. But when the Jews were faithful, they did not compile data or weigh facts or sort through their feelings through reason and logic. They, they listened to their poets. They accepted the proposal of their poet prophets. See, scholars say that 75% of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, 75% is in poetry. 75%. Matter of fact, it was just a response of even the non-artistic among the Hebrew community. Jacob did poetry when he blessed his 12 sons. Moses and Miriam did poetry when God's people were liberated from slavery. Deborah and Barak did poetry when the Canaanites were defeated. Hannah did poetry when Samuel was born. The Jews did poetry when David defeated Goliath. And Mary did poetry when she found out she was pregnant with the Christ child. All of these fathers and mothers of Israel did poetry as opposed to collecting data and weighing facts and sorting through feelings and logic and reason. They did poetry and they listened to their poet prophets when they needed God to do something impossible. Advent is the divine proposal from God to struggle between the words of the truly poetic and prophetic, the words that speak of the transforming presence of God, and then the false prophets with their two voices of our day who tell us, that hope rests upon Capitol Hill. And if that is true, Advent becomes a time for relinquishing some of the control that we long to grab and calls us to wait upon the transforming presence of God who is capable of doing the impossible. This Advent season, we're going to take some time to listen to the Hebrew poet prophets as we long for the transforming presence of God. And in keeping with the text this morning, we will begin with Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is framed by poems. In the beginning of the book of Isaiah, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the poet prophet says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. At the top of the mountains... And will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations. Listen and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. Isaiah chapter 2. But then at the end of the book of Isaiah, in chapter 65, technically the second book of Isaiah, split up into two, the poet prophet says this in verses 17 through 18, 20 through 21, and 25. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Let that settle for a minute. We're living as though these things are going to last forever. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am, say the word with me, 
Creating, not going to create. Creating in the present tense before your very eyes. Oh, if only we would see our belief and then live as though we believe what we see. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. And in that new city, infants will not die. And people will build houses and live in them. Amy, houses for everyone. The kingdom of peace finally comes where the poet prophet says, the wolf and the lamb and the lion will feed together. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. Can you imagine the poet prophet says this? He, he offers this out through an imagination and he imagines something that is happening in light of God's presence in the world and he proposes it because it's promised. And he's proposing it to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the people of God. He's proposing that this world is possible, but they're not, they, they, that's, not, that's not what the boots on the ground tell us about the world, Isaiah. I don't see it, Isaiah. And so Isaiah sounds like a bumbling idiot, like the man who's going to propose to the girl who doesn't want to marry him. He just proposes and lays it all out on the line, and they say, thank you, but no. And the people of God, they're all stocked up. They're not buying crazy. Not from the poet prophet. Violence is the way, really. Defend yourself, they say. Take what you need. We might run out of oil, so let's take it from someone else. Don't beat your swords in the plows you might need your swords later and don't beat your spears in the pruning hooks because you might need your spears later too because the wolf ain't lying with the lamb he's gobbling them up and so isaiah sounds like an idiot yet this is his poem he moves from they shall not learn war anymore to they shall not hurt or destroy anymore. And this poetic, prophetic word from God disrupts the data that has been compiled. It disrupts the facts that have been weighed and the feelings that have been sorted out through intellectual reason and logic. And so the hearers simply say, it cannot be possible. But yet, in the middle of chapter 2 and chapter 65, we find chapters 8 and 9, where we find the prophecies of the Christ child, who is the hinge upon which this door of violence and peace swings. And it begins with the poet prophet speaking of a world that sounds much like our own, one covered in the darkness of violence, fear, and anxiety. The people of Judah, church, they've compiled the data and they weighed the facts and all they see is only, quote, distress and darkness and the gloom of affliction, Isaiah 8, 22. 
And uncertain of where to turn, they look for help like we do. They look for help in all the wrong places like we have, like false gods and idols. They looked for help in the dead, but they looked for help in a place we're very familiar. They're political leaders. Isaiah 8, 19-20, read it, it's in the book. And overwhelmed by the darkness that covers them, people look to anyone or anything for light and hope. And it is then, it is right there in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, that that Isaiah shows up and he begins to speak the same words we read this morning from chapter 9. Except we'll read the whole chapter. He says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the formal times when God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future He will bring honor to the way of the sea. But in the future, He will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of the east of Jordan, to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah imaginatively proposes a tie when this, quote, great light would dawn on the, quote, way of the sea, which, by the way, ran through Galilee. And with this great light, the nation would grow and celebrate as if a great harvest has come, but it would be a different kind of nation. Not the kind of nation that they wanted it to be. Yahweh's only interested in making one nation great, and that's His called the kingdom. And he says, with this great light, the rod of oppression would be lifted and all military gear would be burned as fuel for fires. With this great light that breaks into the world, the land would be filled with hope and peace and joy even while oppression and war move onward knowing and believing that there would come a day when it would no longer exist because of this great light, who when people saw this great light would see the path that this great light illuminates for them and would follow the path of light as opposed to the path of darkness. The question is, will they see the light? See, the great light would come with the birth of a child who would be the light of the world. The poet-prophet says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, but not the government you think a different government altogether. See, a great light dawns with a birth announcement. The fortunes of Israel and Judah, as well as the whole earth, will turn on the birth of this child. This birth announces hope and breaks the claims of all the data that we've compiled and all the facts that we've weighed and measured and all the feelings that we've sorted through with our intellectual logic and, 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 and reasoning. 
And the claims of this birth announcement will not rest on a man-made government. God, if we would only get that. This announcement will not rest upon a man-made government. But upon the government that this child will usher into the world and in the midst of all governing peoples. The poet tells us that this child will be called Wonderful Counselor because he'll have wisdom, not just data and reasoning. He'll be called Mighty God because he'll demonstrate God's strength to do the impossible. Say the impossible. Not just what the data and reasoning say is possible. He'll be called Everlasting Father because he will act with compassion and mercy, and without partiality, contrary to our narrative. And he will not play the pick-and-choosing game of this sort of pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps logic of benevolence. No, no, no. He will be generous and just grace it. He'll be called Prince of Peace because he will love even his enemies and offer a self-giving love that results in a life-giving peace and restorative justice rather than the death-dealing vengeance of punitive justice. Poet, prophet, sounds like an idiot. Because the words he lays before the hearers are really not the words they're interested in hearing. And yet he's calling them to a different kind of hope. One that's not going to be anchored in political leaders. And the idols of money and wealth and power and patriotism. No. The hope will be rooted in something far greater and deeper and eternal than that. And so the poet prophet steps back and with his arms spread wide, he takes a deep breath because he's about to say something big as he wraps this thing up. And he says... His government, this Christ child, this wonderful counselor, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, his government and its shalom, its peace will never end. And he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And then he whispers, if you ever doubt, know this. And then he raises his voice again and says, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, will make this happen. And he says, place your hope in that. Because the passion and furious love of the God of heaven and earth will make this happen himself. No 
man-made government will ever change that. They don't have the power to change that. No idol can ever offer that. No other child to be born will ever usher something like this into our existence. <clears throat> the poet prophet tells us of a new possibility of peace, of wholeness, of well-being, of shalom, where fear and anxiety no longer has to rule our hearts. It doesn't have to. It will if we place our hope in something else, but if we place our hope in this, it doesn't have to rule our hearts. Still there? Yeah. On the bottom shelf down there at the top, you know, in the corner? Yeah, yeah, it's there. It's, it's right there, but it doesn't rule our hearts because hope has been revealed by this great light that has come through this Christ child who will become and who has become our king. And like every ruler, King Jesus will have to sort out all the things that exist in the world in accordance to his government. See, there's the difference. There's, there's, the, there's the mic drop. There's, there's the thing. He will sort out all things in accordance to His government. His. And it'll disrupt all the things in ours. And He'll make decisions that side with the poor, not the rich. He'll make decisions that side with the hungry, not the well-fed. He'll make decisions that side with those who mourn in humility, not those who laugh in pride. Just like the psalmist said, he will fully repay the arrogant. He'll side with those who are meek and who stand on the margins of society and those who are persecuted, not those who stand in the center of society with self-centered power who do the persecuting. And so the prophet asks us, where's your data now? Where's your data and your reasoning that tell you that power comes through domination? The poet prophet asks. It may tell you that vengeance should be yours to take. It may tell you that your rights matter above all other people's rights. It may tell you that the threats of terror should cause you to fear. But, the poet prophet says, what do you say about the Christ child who will live and die? and be resurrected, and will reign forevermore as He makes His presence known among His people. What do you say about His power that came not through domination, but through self-giving love? The poet-prophet asks us that question. The poet-prophet asks, what do you say about His proclamation that vengeance is His and His alone to take? What do you say about His willingness to give up His rights as the God of heaven and earth to be born in a manger so that we can have the rights to be called children of God? What do you say, the poet-prophet asks, about His assurance that you, need not, that you need not to fear the terror that can destroy only your bodies and not your souls. What do you say about His promise that for those who have trusted Him as King and Lord have been made a citizen of a kingdom that's never going to falter or fail or be in trouble? What do you say about those things, the poet-prophet asks? Because that's His proclamation. Where do you place your hope? The poet-prophet asks. Those two voices are loud. They're all over the place. They're sitting next to you. Is there room for the poet-prophets among us? The poet-prophet asks, does this all sound impossible to you? But then the poet-prophet steps back once again. He takes a breath. And he asks, can you live by faith as if all of this is 
happening and going to happen? Can you trust the Christ child enough to believe that it's possible? See, therein lies the problem. But when we love our neighbors, we love ourselves, we're living as though this is possible. When we decide to treat others as we would be treated, especially in including our enemies and those who wrong us, but we would treat them as we would be treated, we're living as though this is possible. When we decide to be generous with our resources and with our time, as opposed to taking what we have and accumulating more, we're actually living as this is possible. When we pursue reconciliation and forgiveness of those who have wronged us, we're actually living as if this is possible. When we welcome all people, especially those on the margins, and we don't expect them to come to us, but we go to them instead, we're actually living as though this is possible. When we come to the table every week and we sit around this table, remembering that no one gets to choose who sits at this table because Jesus is the host and it's his table, we're living as though this is possible. When we make room from the skeptics and the doubters, because we all know that we've been skeptic and we're still skeptical at times and we doubt too, we're living as though this is possible. And when we stand up in a world that gives us two voices and tells us that our hope rests on Capitol Hill, and we with a prophetic voice, with all of our imaginative and expressive and disruptive and comforting words, put ourselves out there on the line like idiots and say, not so. We're living as though it's possible. When we invite our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members away from the idolatrous, I said idolatrous posture that we take to place our hope and man-made governments, and man-made things, and invite them to place their hope in the Christ child who lay in a manger, and then walk with them in that transition, enter into their lives through a relationship of presence. We live as though it's possible. When we listen to the person who is hurting, even when we disagree with the basis of their hurt, we're living as though this is possible. When we refuse to tell them what we think, so that we can tell them what God seems to think. And trust them with the consequences of that message we just share. We live as though it's possible. We begin living with a watchful hope. An abiding peace. Self-giving love. And an unending joy because we believe. That what Isaiah said has happened, happened, and is happening. And even though the data that has been compiled, and the facts that are being weighed, and the feelings that are being sorted sorted through, through all the 
Reason and logic may tell us otherwise. We hear the Apostle Paul when he said, we walk by faith and not by sight. And then in Galatians 5, 6 said, faith works itself out in nothing less than love. And so we choose to love our neighbors anyway. And we choose to treat others as we would want to be treated, whether they treat us that way or not anyway. And we live as a people of hope. Church, our society doesn't need another church. Our society doesn't need a bunch of people who got their stuff together. Our society needs a prophetic community. Your neighbors and your friends and your loved ones need a poet prophet in their life. And God's Holy Spirit inside of you is calling you to that. To be a truth teller in love. And during this Advent season, to take advantage of the season and call people to hope. To hoping in nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness.